Church History Matters, Episode 15. Peace to you, brothers and sisters. Welcome to another episode of Church History Matters. My name is Joseph Knowles. And I am Ruben Rosales. All right, and we're back with you. Second- For the 50th time. Yes, episode 50. So that's that's kind of exciting. It took us a little while to four get years? there. Four years? Yeah, about well, four years. Well, when did it start? 2020, right? 2019. 19, yeah, fall five 20, years. Yeah, 2019. Or it will be five years in the fall. So a little over wow. four years. That's about 10 year, episodes a year. That's not yeah, bad. Yeah, that's not bad. And considering- For full working time. Yeah. Family. Exactly. Yeah, that's not exactly. Bad. I mean, I think I read somewhere that uh, most podcasts have three or fewer episodes. Really? Because, I mean, you think about it, it's, it's extremely easy mm-hmm. to get up and running on a, on a podcast, um, especially with the- the apps and hosting platforms you can sure if you have a smartphone like sure, you can yeah. make a podcast it's really that easy so yeah. yeah there's there's children that are millionaires using their phones oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh my goodness so we're what's today today is february 6th when we're talking but this episode will be coming to you lord willing on february 14th Hey, how about that? Yeah, which is Valentine's Day. So hopefully you're with your special someone, your husband, your wife, or your husband or wife-to-be, or your cat. Could be that too. And I mean, what better to do on Valentine's Day? Because only cat people are alone. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Oh, I I keep saying this is going to be the thing that gets us hate mail. And so far it hasn't happened. (laughs) We don't have enough listeners for hate mail. (laughs) Yes. They're either – we don't have enough or they're just Uh, very, very understanding or they share our sense of humor. Yeah. So yeah, Valentine's Day. And I'm sure this is your favorite Valentine's Day activity to to listen to our podcast. But there is a church history connection. How about that? Yes. And traditionally, there is St. Valentine is supposed to have been martyred on February 14th. And that's about all that we can say for sure about him. Because if you go to – so for instance, if you go to uh, – Wait, you mean it doesn't have anything to do with this little Cupid baby that flies uh, around Oh, definitely arrows? not that. Definitely not that. That's wild. Um, I've been lied to. <laughs> yes. Um, it's all made up. So there, w- there were actually several – I mean if you go to new ad- newadvent.org, which is the Catholic Encyclopedia mm-hmm, online, mm-hmm. there are actually several – Don't go there. No, I mean it's 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 got a lot of useful information, it does, but it does. it's also user beware. Right? Yes, exactly. Saint Valentine, who gave his name to the day, is not the only Valentine that has been canonized by the Catholic Church. There's How at about least that? there's at least three. Huh? And the guy who we think of as the the Saint Valentine, it's not entirely clear who he was, when exactly he lived, or what it was that got him martyred. Um, Because the traditional date of his martyrdom occurred during the reign of an emperor who was 
not really known for persecuting and executing Christians. Hmm. So there's one kind of fuzzy area to begin with. Right. And then there's also the other that you, you hear this fairly often, the account that, well, what he got in trouble for was it was illegal for Christians to be married in a Christian ceremony. You had to be married in the Roman civil ceremony. So therefore he was performing these marriages in secret according to the way hmm. that Christians should do them. But there's actually not very much historical evidence I like it. Either. No, I like that. No, yeah, the government shouldn't be involved. It, well, there you go. Um, <laughs> it is it is a divine institution, not one that was created That's by the right. state. Wrong sphere. Yes, um, but like I say, maybe it happened. It's just it's not entirely clear where that tidbit of history or legend came mm-hmm. from, and mm-hmm. how much basis it actually has in fact. But it's nice to think about, and it's a good sentiment. If he if he actually did do that, yeah. well, good for him. And if yeah. that's what got him in trouble with the government, My so man. much the better that he right. was willing to he was willing to die for his conviction on that point. But uh, maybe, right? We don't know for sure. But um, I mean, can we trust anything that the Catholic Church says? I mean, that's but, why we're Protestant. Yeah. <laughs> One of the reasons, maybe. <laughs> so that was uh, February fourteenth, the year. Oh my goodness, it's uh, eighty two, eighty six. Oh wow. Yeah, so many, many years ago, almost 1,800 years ago now. Right after Mount Vesuvius. Right, yeah. So right in that that time period. Yeah. So that's this week in church history. Cool. Which I didn't say before, but... Oh, yeah, you did. Oh, did I? I don't know. Uh, You'll hear it. They'll hear the the music and they'll know what's coming. (laughs) That's right. But in any event, we're going to flash way, way forward in history from that to talk talk about some Baptist stuff. Yeah. Which, if you're here, potlucks. Yeah, you know that we're Baptists. Yeah, and you know we're confessional Baptists who attend a church that uh, holds to the Second London Baptist Confession of 1677. Correct. You're welcome, Dr. Brennan. Yep. You taught us well. <laughs> but we're going to talk about some other Baptist confessions, and these are A little lesser known. Yeah, probably lesser known. Definitely lesser known, uh, yeah. especially these days. And probably good. I mean. Eh. Eh. Yeah, we'll, 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 yeah, we'll talk about it. Decide yeah. what we think. But we're jumping across the pond. So we're leaving merry old England and coming to the New World, which at the time was the colonies of British North America. Gross. Yeah. Well, you know, everybody's got to start somewhere. Yeah. And uh, where does where should we start our story when we're talking about Baptists and Baptist confessions in America? That is a good question. The guy. Huh? The guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess we could start with him. Yeah. We can start with him because he was technically the one who started the first Baptist church. Right. And who was that? That would be Roger Williams. Yes. A little interesting bit of information about Baptist first uh, mm-hmm. is the word Baptist, I guess, earlier in the colonial days really was a, wor- a term that was used to signify those who believed in believers' baptism. And that's probably about as much as we could say. I don't think I mean, right. we would say more than that now, but yes. back then the term was used very loosely. Right. And there were particular Baptists, mm-hmm. there were general Baptists mm-hmm. who believed that there wasn't a particular redemption, there was a general redemption. Right. Um, and there were also, and this was something I learned, Seventh-day Baptists. Yes. <clears throat> Not to be confused with the Seventh-day Adventist. These were... Uh, <laughs> These were far more closer to regular Baptists, just they were Sabbatarians in the old term. Right. They observed the Sabbath on Saturday. Yes. 
So, and they have their reasons for that. I I rem- remember stumbling across them um, a while back and think that was well, this is interesting, and I don't think they're correct about that for various reasons. Right, but they do have. Let's not as if they just decided that on a whim. They have some uh, theological convictions when it comes to that, and they still exist. Some of yeah. them. You also have to take into account the fact that during that time, America wasn't America. Right. And as you said, you know, they were, this was the British, the colonies in North America that belonged to Britain. Right. So, yeah. So there was definitely some connection between the churches because all of the churches that existed in the quote unquote new world, you know, they were church plants. Yes. Of churches from England. There was a lot of shared information. Sometimes they would request pastors to be Mm -hmm. sent over from England. Right. Right. So there was definitely a connection between the English and the American, early American churches. But the very first church that was distinctly Baptist was uh, formed at Providence in 1639 by Roger Williams. Mm. So even – that's interesting that even before – the first London Baptist Confession, mm-hmm. there was a Baptist church. In America. In America. That's, That's pretty, pretty neat. Yeah. yeah. Now, we, we mentioned it earlier when we were talking. Yeah. Roger Williams wasn't, he was passing through being yeah. a Baptist. He yes. wasn't like a <laughs> solid Baptist. Right. He went a little askew. Yes. We'll say. He, he kept on, he was on a uh, He took some for reprimanding. <laughs> yes. A little too literally. Yes. Where he ended up is unfortunate by the end of his life. But some of the things that he stood for uh, were good. And it was good, I think, that Baptists... Well, I think there were, one thing is they're already latching onto these things yeah. separate and apart from Roger Williams. Yeah. The idea of separation of church and state. Those are different spheres of authority. So that's what... And that's part of the reason that he ended up in Rhode Island is he originally came to the Massachusetts Bay Colony mm-hmm. and they were not having it. <laughs> they were not, absolutely not having it. And and that's something, you know, well, the, the, the Puritans were theonomic. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, yeah. And they did not abide with this foolish Baptist nonsense. Right. Nope. Um, nope. So he was... Which we could, I guess we could say, persecuted yeah. for oh, his yeah. Baptist convictions mm-hmm. and was uh, kind of a uh, very, very um, uncivilly told, get out. Right. <laughs> it's been a while since I, because I did read a, a book about him, but it's been years ago now. And I think he probably, technically, he was actually subject to banishment. Yeah. By which they would have said, hey, you know, you can have your convictions. That's fine. We're not telling you what to believe. You just can't. <laughs> you cannot publicly teach people that. And right. if we tell you not to do it and you continue to do it, then yeah. either you have to leave the colony or else. Yeah. And, and they, that, they were like, pretty serious about that else. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> like the Michael Cervatus kind of else. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. So that's how, yeah, like I said, that's how he ends up in Rhode Island. and But that leads to the founding of the first Baptist church. Yeah, it says America. here, uh, Roger Williams, uh, when he was really convicted of the separation of church and state, it had more to do with the basic principle of religious liberty and the freedom of the soul before God. Right. So that's what we would call freedom of conscience. Right, yes, which actually has its own, there's an article on that in the Linda Baptist Confession, and maybe yep. we'll talk about that. Yep. In the Bloody, in the Bloody? Tenant Williams? Oh, yeah. The bloody tenant of persecution. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in discussing Romans 13, observed, this scripture held forth a twofold state, a civil state and a spiritual. Civil officers and spiritual. 
civil weapons and spiritual weapons. He further affirmed, all the power the magistrate hath over the church is temporal, Mm -hmm. not spiritual. Mm -hmm. And all power the church hath over the magistrate is spiritual, not temporal. Mm -hmm. So Williams was a big, big proponent of sphere sovereignty. Yeah, that's good. So that's kind of how the Baptists get their start. And I'm kind of glad that is a tradition that kind of stuck. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Absolutely. So I think maybe we're we're ready to... Not like those Presbyterians who are like, yes, if the royal crown wishes, we (laughs) shall assemble. (laughs) Just kidding. We love our Presbyterians. Yes, we do. (laughs) We have to append that to everything (laughs) you're saying. They they know we love To be entirely clear. Yes. So if we jump ahead in time, well, a few decades, actually, we get to Pennsylvania. And if you remember, I mean, I think I remember learning most of this in elementary school, but uh, the founding of Pennsylvania. So it's what was called a proprietary colony. Yeah. So basically, uh, King Charles II, who now is back on the throne um, after the restoration in 1660, he owes a large debt to a man by the name of Penn. Hmm. And he actually pays off this debt by granting land in the New World to the man's son, a man by the name of William Penn, uh, who happened to be a Quaker. So in 1681... We got to do an episode on those guys. Yeah. At some point we do. Or actually, yeah, the grant was made in 1681, and it's, of course, now what is known as Pennsylvania. Not the exact borders, but the general area. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the next year, 1682, William Penn arrives, and he founds what would become the capital city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Man, how far that's fallen. Well, I mean, as a Cowboys fan, you might not be a totally objective observer. That's that's fair. (laughs) So William Penn being a Quaker, the colony was always intended to be a kind of a haven for Quakers. But they gave broad religious freedom for the time to lots of people. Naturally, this ended up attracting a lot of Baptists to the area. And there were a number of them that began settling near Philadelphia as early as the year 1683. So very, very quickly after the founding of the colony. And just to highlight a few of the churches in that region. Now, not all of these were in Pennsylvania proper, but they're in and around that area of Philadelphia. The first one is the Pennypeck Church or the Pennypack Church or... (laughs) It has so many names. Also known as Lower Dublin Baptist Church. I like that one. Yeah. So Lower Dublin is uh, probably still like a a suburb or a town in and around Philadelphia, if I'm not mistaken. But this was the first. So there was a Baptist church in the area previously, but it went defunct. So this is the first permanent Baptist church in Pennsylvania. It was organized in the year 1687. Interestingly, most of the members of this church came from Wales. So a lot of Welsh people involved. And their first pastor was a man by the name of Elias Keach. Hmm. And hopefully that name sounds familiar to a listeners. A little bit familiar. Yeah. He was, in fact, the son of Benjamin Keach. And we talked about Benjamin Keach in uh, a little bit of detail back when we reviewed uh, Dr. Michael Higgins' book, yeah. Kiffin, Knowles, and Keach, uh, last year. But it's very interesting how the story of how Elias Keach came to be the pastor of that congregation. This was something I came across in a book called To Set Them in Order by Dr. James Clark. So it's basically a history of the Philadelphia Baptist Association in the 18th and early 19th century. So this is actually from a 
reference work that he sticks in the back of the book as an appendix. So this is not Dr. Clark writing, but it's included in his book. And speaking of the um, <clears throat> the folks there, it says these parties were settled in Lower Dublin as early as 1687. The previous year, Elias Keach, a son of the famous London divine, the Reverend Benjamin Keach, an eminent author among the English Baptists, came to America. And this was interesting, I thought. Uh, speaking of Elias Keach, he was a gay, wild, thoughtless young man and was converted in a most extraordinary manner. Hmm. And this is the account given by Morgan Edwards. On his landing, he dressed in black and wore a band in order to pass for a minister. So just so we're all tracking, he was not a minister. He was <coughs> he was faking it. Whoops. Yes. Edwards continues. The project succeeded to his wishes, and many people resorted to hear the young London divine. He performed well enough till he had advanced pretty far in the sermon. Then, stopping short, he looked like a man astonished. The audience concluded he had been seized with a sudden disorder, mm -hmm. but on asking what the matter was, received from him a confession of the imposture, with tears in his eyes and much trembling. Great was his distress, though it ended happily, for from this time he dated his conversion. He heard there was a Baptist minister at Cold Spring in Bucks County, it's there in Pennsylvania, to whom he repaired to seek counsel and comfort, and by him was baptized. Mr. Keach at once devoted himself to preaching the gospel, and in 1687 visited the region of Pennypeck and preached as opportunity offered. So, Huh. See, my, my book said uh, January 1688. Hmm. Wait, hold on. Young Keach arrived in 1687... Mm -hmm. Not a professing Christian, described as an exceedingly wild spark and a stranger to divine grace. Mm. Of course, he dressed like a preacher. Right. I was invited to preach at a Baptist gathering near Philadelphia. He had heard his father often enough that giving a sermon was no great problem. Mm. However, in the midst of the sermon, Keach was seized by the enormity of his sin, stopped speaking, and began to tremble. Keach's hearers thought some illness had come upon him. He confessed his deception and begged their forgiveness. He also was soundly converted under his own preaching. <laughs> yeah. He later received baptism from Elder Dungan at Cold Spring. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, pretty remarkable story. That is, is in fact, quite remarkable. Yeah. Go ahead. I just want to continue reading this little blurb from this mm -hmm. uh, book I'm quoting from. It's called The Baptist Heritage. The conversion of Keach proved a great blessing to Baptist work in the middle colonies. It's weird to think of Pennsylvania as being a middle colony. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. I guess it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He brought youth, vigor, and dynamism to the work, along with skill in organization. He represented the most progressive elements in English Baptist life, both in moderate theology and vigorous church order and evangelism. He was not involved in divisive controversies of the time, which eroded Baptist strength and hampered growth. Above all, he brought vigorous evangelistic outreach, preaching throughout the area, and establishing several new churches. Can you imagine that for a minute, though? Hmm. Think about this. Your son, who has not made a profession of faith, mm -hmm. leaves across the ocean. Right. You don't know if you will ever yeah. see him again. 19 years old. Yeah. And then he gets up into some tomfoolery. Uh-huh. But yeah. the Lord uses that, yeah. even that, to save him. That's incredible. How amazing. I mean, you know Benjamin Keach. I mean... Must have been praying. Must have prayed for him often. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that, I don't remember. Was Keach still alive at that point? Yes. Okay. Yes, he was. Okay. Yeah. So that's the that's the, the Pennypack Church. 
which is is still there. <laughs> well, they, well, we won't <laughs> we won't go into all that. The building is there. Yeah. Well, they had um, so they had a, a building that they built in 1707. They built a meeting house. <clears throat> and they rebuilt another structure on top of the old one in 1805. They moved away, uh, but then in the late 19th century, the 1880s or so, they moved back. So they've been in that location with a brief interlude there for you know since the late part of the or the early part of the 18th century. So a very very long time. And there is still a congregation that that uh, meets there. They have various uh, they do have various historical events. But it's yeah, it's interesting that they've now they started with about a dozen members and they got up to two hundred and fifty or three hundred. And so I mean, I would regard that as a fairly large church. Yeah. Now, not large by your mega church standards of today. Those aren't churches. Well, that's a whole other episode. <laughs> but especially for the time, you know, membership of three hundred was that was substantial. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I would consider that substantial today, but for the time. Yeah, I would too, you know, even for today. Yeah. I mean, that's large for back then. Right. We're not Metropolitan Tabernacle, but no, no. still a sizable, yes. sizable church. Yes. So, you know, sadly now they're, they're it, it looks, it appears like they're back down around the membership that they started with, which, you know, is, is sad in a way, but that, you know, it tends to happen with a, with a lot of churches. So it's not all that unusual. Well, I wanted to touch base on the um, Second Baptist Church. Okay. Second Baptist Church that was uh, in America. Hmm. Newport, Rhode Island was the site of the Second Baptist Church in America formed by 1644 Hmm. and possibly even earlier Hmm. by John Clark. John Clark was a minister and physician. Hmm. Yeah. Clark's life was amazingly parallel with Roger Williams'. About the same age, both men traveled the road from separatism to Baptist life. Both founded colonies in Rhode Island. Both established early Baptist churches, and both excelled in public service. Williams in obtaining the Charter of 1644, Clark the Charter of 1663. There were also significant differences. Whereas Williams was somewhat erratic, Clark was the soul of steadfastness. Williams remained a Baptist for only a few months, Mm -hmm. see, Mm -hmm. (laughs) passing through. Yeah while Clark served faithfully for more than 40 years. While Williams was the more dynamic and creative of the two, Clark was more steady and stable. John Clark lived from 1609 to 1676. He was born in Suffolk County, England uh, on October 3rd, 1609, and uh, was baptized five days later because that's what, you know, the Pado-Baptists do. Right. He was well-educated, but we don't know where. University of Leiden shows... A Johannes Clark among its students in 1635, leading some to conclude that Clark attended that famous Dutch school and there became acquainted with Dutch Anabaptist Mm -hmm. and Baptist. This may well be true, but positive evidence is lacking. Mm. Yeah. So he was a well-established, well-reputed physician and at times practiced law. He was an able statesman and diplomat, and as well as serving with remarkable success as a Baptist pastor. So that's pretty remarkable how God continues to use the worst of men in lawyers and making them (laughs) into Baptist ministers. It's amazing. Indeed. Indeed. (laughs) But there were some problems with the Baptist. Did you have any of that in there? What caused some of the splits? Mm, Well, uh, yes. So 
I have the uh, I don't have a lot on it, but I do have a at least a note about the hymn singing controversy. Let's read uh, from scripture first. Yeah. Uh, Hebrews chapter six verses one and two was uh, the was a major point of contention for at least one of these associations. Mm-hmm. We haven't even gotten to mm-hmm. the second one, which would be Charleston. Right. That was the con- so you had the the uh, upper northern America colonies, you know, Maine, mm-hmm. and then you had the middle colonies, Philadelphia, and you had the southern one, which right. was in South Carolina, Charleston right. area. Anyhow, Hebrews chapter six verses one and two. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Oh, that was verse three. Sorry. Mm -hmm. But um, so one of the biggest differences between as I said, there were General Baptist, Particular Baptist, Seventh Day Baptist. Obviously, the biggest difference between the general and the particular was that of the atonement. Was there a general atonement or a particular atonement? Right. And so that was probably the biggest difference. But the another difference, significant difference, was the General Baptist were typically what they called six principal Baptists. Mm-hmm. And the six principles are from Hebrews chapter mm-hmm. six. Verses 1 and 2. And those principles being what was listed there, less the elementary principles of Christ. Repentance from dead works. Faith toward God. The doctrine of baptisms. Laying on of hands. Resurrection of the dead. And eternal judgment. Mm-hmm. So, one of those eventually would drop off. And specifically, the particular Baptists only held to what they called five. They were right. five principal Baptists. And so, they did not believe that... A laying on of hands was necessary for every new convert mm. and for every believer. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that gets laid out in, in one of the confessions. Right. Yeah, that, that will take us to one of the other significant churches leading up to the formation of the Philadelphia Baptist Association was in nearby Delaware. So there were a bunch of Baptists who purchased, well, first of all, this church was organized in South Wales in 1701. And then in 17, uh, September 18th, that same year, the congregation picks up and they come to Philadelphia. Hmm. Kind of, they were invited by some of the Baptists that were already here. Um, so they land in Philadelphia. They eventually buy some land in Delaware, hence the name, the Welsh Tract Church, being a hmm. tract of land. Um, and we've already kind of alluded to the additional chapters that will are added in the Philadelphia Confession. And this church probably had a significant effect on that because two of those practices were only practiced in the Welsh Baptist churches, according to uh, uh, James Clark's book. So that's where they may have come up over from, at least in part. A few years later, 1707, there's a meeting at Lower Dublin – um, again, back where the, the Pennypack church is. Yeah. And it was decided that messengers from the five Baptist churches would meet later in the year. So mm. this is the church there in, in Lower Dublin. You've got the one in Delaware, and then there are three in New Jersey, one of which was also pastored by Elias Keach at one time, 1690. So these churches kind of formed themselves into an association, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. 
but then within a few dec well, within a couple decades after its formation, they also admit churches from New York, Maryland, and Virginia. So kind of bringing in all of those middle mm-hmm. colonies. By 1762, so this is, uh, you know, 45 years or so after they first met, they had 29 churches with a total membership of 1,418. Mm. Yeah. So, And then two years later, they would form a, a Baptist college. Yes, which was mm, no idea. I don't have it. <laughs> I don't have it here. I believe I believe that was uh, what. Uh, let me just pull it up. Princeton. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> the College of New Jersey. Um, I believe that's going to be. Um, nope, I'm wrong. <laughs> I was thinking Brown University, but that's not correct. Was it a white university? I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> wasn't that either. Uh, Brown University is the uh, Congregationalists. Mm. And Princeton is the Presbyterians. And oh. I know which I, I know I remember reading about the one that you were referring to, but I can't remember which one it was either. Um, but that was one of the many projects that the yeah. uh, Philadelphia Association was involved in. Missions. Yep. Home, raise, home mission work. Mm-hmm, raising funds. So if they knew of a church that was struggling financially, they would help them out. There were several churches that needed – they were either losing their buildings or they needed to raise funds to have a place to meet. So they would help with that. And they also supported the traveling of ministers because, again, at that time, you know, church might find itself in a position where the pastor has died or had to leave or go back to England or what have you. And they would have – uh, what we now probably call pulpit supply. So we're going to send so-and-so down there to preach for them and, and pastor that church uh, until they can call a minister full-time. One of the other projects that they had, and this is the one for which they're most remembered now, is uh, the adoption of – well, let me back up. The reprinting of the Second London Baptist Confession in uh, 1743. Now, they added to it a couple things. One of those was kind of an appendix or a treatise on church discipline by Benjamin Griffith. Interestingly, um, if you remember your early American history, you might remember there was a, a guy who ran a printing press in Philadelphia. He came, you know, he turned out to be kind of famous in American history. <laughs> uh, Benjamin Franklin was the one who printed the Confession of the Philadelphia Baptist Association. Yeah, Brown, Brown says it was a Baptist college in New England. Okay. Yes. Well, I stand corrected. I should have gone with my hunch. In the spring in 1764. Well, there you go. Yep. Okay. Sorry. No, it's fine. So, yeah, if you look, and the one I have is a facsimile reproduction, so it actually has the title page as it appeared. And at the bottom it says, Philadelphia, printed by B. Franklin, 1743. Now... Usually, if you look up information on the Philadelphia Baptist Confession, it will say that it was adopted in 1742. And one of the primary reasons for that is on the title page that was printed by Benjamin Franklin, it says, adopted by the Baptist Association met at Philadelphia, September 25th, 1742. But... Hmm. (laughs) um, the it's probably misleading uh, for a couple of reasons. So we actually have minutes. So they kept records of all their meetings. The minutes of the Philadelphia Philadelphia Baptist Association suggest it was quite a bit earlier than that. So one of the other things that they would do as an association, and you see this as one of the functions of associations 
in the confession itself yeah. is when they have some kind of dispute, whether it's doctrinal or what have you, churches could write to the confession or write to the association and say, will you please help us resolve this? Mm-hmm. Or if we have a question. Um, so what they got one of those questions in 1724, and in their response, they said to refer to the confession of faith set forth by the elders and brethren met in London, 1689, and owned by us. Hmm. And then they referred them to a specific chapter and section to resolve their question. So already there in 1724, they're definitely saying, hey, this is our confession also. Three years later, they answer a question in a similar way by saying, hey, pointing people, go to our confession of faith, Hmm. referring to the Second London Confession. And then there's another book. It's Baptist Confessions of Faith by William Lumpkin. And he has, it's pretty comprehensive work. I haven't looked at it myself, but I've seen it referred to in a number of other places. He points a couple uh, out a couple of instances even earlier. So remember we said a lot of the early Baptist settlers who were coming to the area were from Wales. And there's a translation of the London Confession into Welsh in 1716 that was being circulated in America as well as the use of the confession to settle a doctrinal difficulty in 1712. So, Mm. I mean, in what sense do you want to say it was adopted in 1742? It it seems like it was adopted much earlier than Mm -hmm. that, and it was only in 1742 that they met and decided we need to have another printing of this so that our member churches will all be on – they'll have it for their reference and will all be on the same page. Yeah, it says uh, in 1701 there were still a signif- there were still a number of members of uh, General Baptist in the congregation. They would mm-hmm. accept General Baptist. That was another really cool thing is, you know, I went to the Browns website really quick mm-hmm. and that was one of the tenets of their forming that college mm-hmm. is to have a freedom of relig- you mm-hmm. know, freedom of religion meaning freedom of the Christian religion. Right, yes. You which is, you know, obviously because their strong belief Baptists have a strong belief in freedom of the conscience Mm -hmm. and that's why it's okay for presbyterians to be wrong right you know we're not going to hold it against them (laughs) (laughs) um so that's kind of how the uh how it got the year 1742 tacked onto it but there are so we've kind of already alluded to it and talked about it a little bit there's what are the there's two main differences between the second london baptist confession and the philadelphia confession one of those is that after you got some yeah so um, the church in Charleston, First Baptist Church of Charleston, regarded itself as a continuation of the transpla- transplanted Kittery Church mm-hmm. and traced its origins back to eight, uh, 1682. Right. No evidence suggests the Screven group ever considered reorganizing or making a new beginning of their church in Charleston. At the 150-year anniversary of the Charleston Church observed in 1832, mm. Pastor Basil Manley, himself a careful historian, wrote, to the constitution and subscription of a covenant above mentioned at Kittery, September 25th, 1682, the Baptist Church in Charleston traces its origin. And from all the means of information now accessible, it is most probably concluded that their settlement about Charleston was only a transfer of the seat of worship of the persecuted flock, or a majority of it, which had been gathered on the mm, Piscataqua? Mm, I think so. Yeah. So yeah, this church is the oldest Baptist church in the South. Mm-hmm. Observed its 300 year anniversary in 1982. Oh man, that's that's pretty amazing. Yeah, 300 years. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's a yeah. They came from uh, Kittery from yeah from Maine. Maine. Yeah. So they pick it from Maine and go to South Carolina. That's yeah. 
quite a all bit. those persecuting Presbyterians. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. So, and they they're going to, and we'll I, we'll talk about them a little bit because the confession and the association they they come a little bit later, even though yeah. First Baptist Church of Charleston is preceding the churches in in Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, so the two primary differences you see between the London Confession and the Philadelphia Confession are after chapter 22, which is of religious worship and the Sabbath day, the Philadelphia Confession inserts a different chapter 23 mm-hmm. of singing of psalms in public worship. And the question might be, why is that there? Well, I mean, one thing, it's not it's not very long, so we can read it. The other one... Oh, it's just a paragraph. Yeah, it's just a paragraph. The other one is longer. Uh, so... It says, we believe that singing the praises of God is a holy ordinance of Christ and not a part of natural religion or a moral duty only, but that it is brought under divine institution, it being enjoined on the churches of Christ to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and that the whole church in their public assemblies, as well as private Christians, ought to sing God's praises according to the best light they have received. Moreover, it was practiced in the great representative church by our, our Lord Jesus Christ with his disciples after he had instituted and celebrated the sacred ordinance of his Holy Supper as a commemorative token of redeeming love. Hmm. Okay. Okay. But yeah, then the question is why did they feel compelled to insert that? Right. Uh, so these were three of the major persistent problems among Baptists. The first, particular versus general. Mm -hmm. Baptists could not agree on the extent and nature of divine predestination. Mm -hmm. Second, Baptists argued over the practice of laying on of hands Mm -hmm. upon new converts, much as is done in ordination. General Baptists favored the practice and sometimes took the name of six principal Baptists for their adherence to the six points of Hebrews 6, 1 through 2. Particular Baptists gave less importance to the laying on of hands, often abandoning the practice altogether. They were sometimes called five principal Baptists. Difficult as it may be for modern readers to believe, churches, members, and ministers often engaged in heated and divisive controversies over this question. And the third problem, which is what you just mentioned, the uh, singing during worship. Mm. Few elements in a typical Baptist worship service today are more familiar than hymn singing. However, that was a controversial practice in the late 1680s among Baptists both in England and America. Mm-hmm. Benjamin Keach introduced hymn singing among English Baptists in the 1680s, but the practice had not really caught on, especially among the general Baptists. Some churches in America allowed the singing of biblical texts, such as the Psalms, but not man-made songs. Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting, uh, I mean, tie uh, tie back to Keach again when you talk about these two particular confessions. Right. And it got, it, it was quite contentious. And I think we talked about it a little bit. Back when we did their book review. Yeah, it's crazy because people don't understand how, like... Oh, yeah. We don't even give it a second thought oh, now. Dude, these were fiery debates yes, and yes. Di- dis- disagreements. They they went back and forth, uh, Benjamin Keach and a guy by the name of Marlowe, uh, several times. So they were trading pamphlets. They You had um, William Kiffin and Hansard Knowles were also mm-hmm. caught up in it. And remember, Hansard Knowles, is, he's old by this time. <laughs> yeah. Um, he was quite old. Um, so for them to get involved in something that was extremely controversial, they obviously considered it to be very important. Yeah. Um, it got to the point where Keach and Marlowe were prepared to have a public debate. They wanted to assemble a com- 
committees of four men each to go over their various things that they'd written on it and, you know, kind of not necessarily have a ruling, but something definitive. So like, right. we want to put this to rest. Mm -hmm. And, and thus, yeah. what yeah. do you do? Well, you put it in the confession. You confess this is right. what the scripture teaches. That's what yeah. a confession is. Yeah. So that's why that's why they put it in there. To yeah. us in the 21st century, it seems unnecessary. Well, of course you sing and worship. Why is this even a question? Right. Well, <laughs> it was a question. It was yeah. a question for a while. And he had his various reasons. So we'll link to some articles. There's actually a three-part series on that on the uh, Founders Ministry website. Nice. Um, it will give you a good – I mean, it's it'll give you a much better telling of it than we can do here in just a couple minutes. And yeah. it'll go into some of the theological reasoning on, on both sides. And as you already mentioned, the other thing that they added in the Philadelphia Confession was in between the chapters on baptism and the Lord's Supper. So in between 30 and 32, they insert a chapter, chapter titled of the laying on of hands. Yeah. They so they believed it doctrine. was an ordinance yes. of God to, um, to do the laying on of hands. Yes. But it's much longer. But just uh, – Hit us with the highlights. We believe that laying on of hands with prayer upon baptized believers as such is an ordinance of Christ and ought to be submitted unto by all such persons that are that are admitted to partake of the Lord's Supper. And then they give, they say the end of this ordinance, so why? It's not for the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit, but for a farther reception of the Holy Spirit of promise or for the addition of the graces of the Spirit and the influences thereof to confirm, strengthen, and comfort them it comfort them in Christ Jesus. And it goes on for a little bit after that. Um, but we'll make sure that that's um, – we'll, we'll link you to something where you can read the rest of that if you so choose to do. Yeah. There's a lot of really good information out there. And uh, we said before we even started recording, like, dude, there was so much. Oh, yeah. So much. Oh, yeah. It was just – I, I mean – I, we've said it before, like this is just scratching the surface yeah, of Baptist yeah. Oh, yeah. heritage and history. There's a lot there. And, you know, f for a lot of folks, Baptist, uh, you know, being a Baptist is all, it's taking on the same meaning it did before. It's like, oh, you just means you believe in Baptist, believer's baptism and that's it. Right. There's a lot more. Oh, yeah. There's a whole lot more there. Yep, for sure. So that kind of covers the uh, Philadelphia Baptist Confession. If I'm not mistaken... And it's been a while since I looked. Uh, if you go to founders.org, which mm -hmm. first of all, you should just go there every so often yes. and see what yes. kind of articles they have uh, because it's good. Even if you're not a Baptist, they've got a lot of a lot of good stuff to read. But it's primarily geared toward Baptists. Yeah. But they have a um, a church 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 search. That's really hard to say. Mm. Feature where now they don't uh, they don't say, hey, we endorse everything that these churches are doing. But it is kind of there as a resource to say, hey, here are these confessional Baptist churches. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are Southern Baptist churches, but they might say, well, we hold to the Baptist faith and message and to the Second London Baptist Confession. If I'm not mistaken, there are still a number on there. The last time I looked, there were a couple at least that hold to the Philadelphia Baptist Confession. Yeah. And which is interesting. Even the First London. Yeah. There's some First London churches. There's some New, Ham New Hampshire churches. New Hampshire Confession, which I put in my notes, but I just didn't have time. There's just too much with the other two to really get into it much. So they're still out there. I haven't come across one of those churches in person to know yeah. um, how strongly do they hold on to, in particular, the the chapter on of the laying on of hands and how how closely or how um, how often they 
you know, practice that, how strict they are about it. I don't know. would be interesting to find out. Uh, we also have the Charleston Confession. So the date that's typically associated with that is 1767. So you already mentioned the First Baptist Church of Charleston. Yeah. So they've been there whew, uh, 80 years um, almost by the time this um, confession is adopted. But all, the, all along, they've been holding on to the Second, London's ba- Second yep. London Baptist Confession. So again, it's a matter of, okay, well, they adopted it in 1767 as an association, but it was already the confession that all these churches held to yeah. when they formed the association in 1751, and then they gave it their official, this is what we do in 1767. But when they adopted officially, this is going to be in a slightly different form from its original form, and different from the Philadelphia Confession. Yeah. So they keep the chapter on, laying uh, on of hands. Sing, singing, song, singing oh, the songs. songs. Okay. Yes. Songs. And they drop the chapter on the laying yeah. on of hands. But they so also. So they got a little closer to right. Well, that's what we would say, <laughs> I guess. And if you remember, the Philadelphia, Philadelphia Confession had a section on church discipline that was tacked onto the end. Hmm. So Charleston Association takes that out and puts their own in. And. In doing so, so if you've read the London Baptist Confession, there's a preface at the beginning to the the judicious and impartial reader. Yes, so they kind of did a similar thing, and they had a preface and kind of anticipating an objection. Yeah, they write this: some may say there is no call for this publication, seeing there is such a valuable treatise on church discipline published some years ago by the Philadelphia Association. We mean not to depreciate the value of that piece. It has merited much from the Baptist churches, but it is out of print, and we apprehend not so explicit as this. Besides, some things therein appear to us exceptionable. However, we have borrowed many hints from it, and are greatly indebted to the late learned, pious, and judicious Dr. Gill from what is taken from his Exposition and Body of Divinity. Hmm. So they say, well, it's good. It's been very helpful. There are some points where we disagree and we just can't – you can't find it anywhere. So if we can't find it, what use is it to us to say we hold to it? Yeah. If we're going to hold to it, we should be able to look at it and know for sure what it says. Otherwise, we're just going on somebody's memory and that's not a good place to be, especially when you think about it in, in matters of church discipline. You don't want to just take so-and-so's word for it. You want to have it in writing. Anything else to say about that? Nope. No, I, okay. I really I had nothing to put on the start. Charleston. Okay, just the, yeah. <laughs> the fun facts about the history of the Charleston Church was yeah. really cool. Oh yeah, they were. That was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And I, I briefly mentioned the New Hampshire Confession, and this is fast oh, forwarding yeah. in time even more. Yeah. Because it comes about in 1833, and just you know, at a very high level, you have some very different things going on. And maybe we'll come back to this at some point and give a little bit more detail. But you have definitely some very different things going on the now the United States of America by the 1830s. So this would be, I mean, within the time frame of the Second Great Awakening, Cane Ridge Revival was 1800-1801. You had Charles Finney coming along right about this time. <sighs> and there was a move to not simplify is not the right word. This is also around the same time that you would have begin to start – you'd start to see the rifts 
between north and south. the north and south mm-hmm. over the issue of slavery. Mm-hmm. And that um, happened not just politically, but also in the church. I don't know that that plays such a large role in the New Hampshire Confession, but they did want something that was a little bit more – basic's the wrong word, but that's the one that, that pops into my head. Um, Watered down? Well, I don't, I don't think that was their intent, not to – not to sure. water down per se, although you could make that argument. To increase the level of association maybe? I think that's more – Improve the ability of association? I don't know. Yeah, I think that's that's uh, that's more – that's probably putting a little bit more positive spin on it. Yeah, it's still trash. Um, but what you do see is that – so we're going from the Philadelphia Confession of Faith, which – outdoes the London by having 34 articles instead of just 32. <laughs> right. Where you have the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. Oh, this one doesn't have the numbers on it. Back up. You know what? I don't even know if that one's in the Creeds and Confessions app. It might not be. And for good reason. So there are 18 no, it's articles. Here. Yeah. So there Ooh, are 18 articles. 18. And each of them is just a, a single paragraph. No. I, d- I think you could go through there and neither I mean, one of like us would – solid – yeah, I don't think we would disagree with anything. No, I don't think we'd find anything in there we would disagree with. But when it comes to matters of the faith, more is better. Yes, yes. Because the Bible's a bit – so, I mean, honestly, this is what you're saying when you make a confession. I confess that the Bible, the Word of God, teaches these things. And if you're going to be – I mean, you can't really have unity – if you're going to be mm-hmm. less specific. Yeah. You, you have less unity. Right. You can have some very, you know, loose association, but I don't think it's going to be as, as close as, you know. Here's one where we might probably Civil definitely government. disagree. Uh, the sixth article is of the freeness of salvation. And it says, we believe that the blessings of salvation are made free to all by the gospel that it is the immediate duty of all to accept them by a cordial, penitent, and obedient faith, and that nothing prevents the salvation of the greatest sinner on earth but his own inherent depravity and voluntary rejection of the gospel. Rich rejection involves him in an aggravated condemnation. Uh, I wouldn't put it that way, but yeah, I think we'd agree. Right. Just um, I don't know that I like the way it's worded. Yes, and I think that's uh, that's probably that was part of the intent there because at the time there was a, there was a controversy over free will versus predestination. Mm. So, yeah. And this would be eventually one of the ones that would kind of lead into the Southern Baptist Convention. Trash. So Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, I believe, has the uh, – my Southern Baptist friends would correct me, I'm sure. Uh, but there was one of the seminaries that had this as their confession at its founding. Really? Um, yeah. So – yeah, so it it has uh, you know a long pedigree, 1833, like we mentioned earlier. It's still around, um, and some some churches use it, which is fine. And yeah. like we said, there's nothing in there that we would say, ah, that's that's heresy. Definitely nothing no. on that on that no. level. Um, Absolutely just, not. Yeah, it it leaves. I think in in that one article, it might, and you can read the whole thing. We'll link to that. It might leave a little more wiggle room than diehard predestinarians well, would like. Well, so in well in in this it's difficult because you don't have to believe everything that's in the what I would say is the correct confession is the Second London mm. Baptist. 
you don't have to believe everything in that in order to be saved. Oh, no, not at all. And so I, I get the desire to say, hey, you follow Christ, the same Christ. Let's unite together because mm-hmm. of that and leave room for some freedom of conscience right. in certain yeah. areas, right? I get it. But I've seen, and, and I think there always will be, this push towards uh, a progressing towards a cliff mm. when you when you leave that much wiggle room, right? Because then other things start to seep in. Yeah, and I mean, even just re- you know, in recent years, we've seen feminism mm. creep in to, to what we would say right are solid churches. Yeah, so you know, you're, there's no real way to prevent it. Yeah. But I think if you open the door to it, that's not a good idea. Either. Right. All while, I mean, and that ha- and those things, and that's not that's just one example. But yeah. all while claiming, well, I hold to Yeah. whatever it is. No you don't. <laughs> um well, and I think the more and that's to your point, the more uh robust and comprehensive a confession yeah. you have, the harder it is yeah. for someone to honestly say that. Right. Because when you start picking away at some of these things, okay, you say you affirm this, however, you also say this. Yes. And when we put two and two together, you can have this or you can have that, but you can't actually have them both. Right. So you see a similar thing, and this I mean, that's kind of the way that, that comes up in our camp. Yeah. But you see it in mainline Protestant churches where people will say, well, I affirm all of the ecumenical creeds, but we're going to hang out a rainbow flag Mm. and we're going to have Bishop so-and-so with her so-called wife, you know, and all this kind of thing. All while saying, well, I affirm all of the historic creeds. Why would you say I'm not a Christian? Well, because you, (laughs) you say with your lips and destroy uh, with your, you know, your words at other times and with your actions, everything that you've said. So right. by your free, by their fruit, you shall know them. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, uh, there's no legitimate human guard against in, you know, the infiltration of, mm-hmm. of wicked, wickedness. Right. Because we're all susceptible yeah. to it. You oh, know, yeah. me, you, mm-hmm. even our elders are susceptible to it. Um, it's nothing but God's grace that protects us from it. So it's just, I mean, it's just another reminder of why we should be in prayer for the church mm-hmm. universal of, you know, those who hold to a true confession, repentance and faith in Christ Jesus Yeah, and pray for your elders every, mm-hmm. every day. Yeah. And I think it actually, it highlights the importance of, especially in Baptist circles, having and it's having that associationalism mm-hmm. because that's, I, that's right. I know if yeah I, I don't foresee this happening ever, but if any of the men who are elders at our church were to get up in the pulpit and go off on some kind of heretical tangent, like, mm-hmm. and none of the other elders were to stop them, like, I know who I'm going to call because I know who these men are. Yep. And I also know they're going <laughs> to they're going to come down like a hammer. Oh yeah. To the extent that they can. Now they don't have authority over right. the church. Right. But I think if we look at associationalism the right way, they would have great influence, which yeah. is important. Absolutely. I think Amen. that's about all. Yeah. I ain't got nothing. Else. All right. All right. Thanks well, everybody. Till next time. Yep. Till next time.